Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello there. Well, we're all snuggled in, uh, you know, distancing at home and listening to the podcast. I have a question. How much control do we have over any diseases that come our way, be it COVID virus or anything else? In the past, well, we I had, think we, yeah, past, I think it's a great had, question. Uh, in the past, we've had two people on our show that have cured their multiple sclerosis. You can check that out. But both were told that their future included definite confinement to a wheelchair. Today, we have another such person that uh, had multiple sclerosis, and he's doing fine with it. So receiving a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, some other brain-related illness, or even COVID virus is devastating. The good news is we have more control over our brain health and our health than we think. With the exception of cancer, many brain illnesses and other illnesses can be reversed through the combination of diet, exercise, supplements, proper sleep, avoiding and removing toxins, and um, taking an epigenetic approach. Several jump starts to various health issues include oxygen therapy, microbiota therapy, photomodulation therapy, and even cannabis can enhance recovery in as little as few weeks. So today... We have Dr. William Code. He's an anesthesiologist, integrative medicine specialist, and acclaimed international speaker and author. A medical practitioner for 40 years, he studied integrative medicine under Dr. Weil at the University of Arizona and is a leading expert in pain management. He had won his 22-year journey with multiple sclerosis. Now, he's written three books. Uh, one of them is winning the pain game, and the other is who's in control of multiple sclerosis. I was intending to talk to him about his most recent book, Solving the Brain Puzzle, A Complete Layman's Guide to Achieving Brain Health. So you can all get this on Amazon, etc., and we may well talk about it or may put it off to a future interview. However, today, let's ask some questions on COVID virus and see what we can learn. So welcome, Dr. Code. Well, thank you. It's good to be on tape with you since we met, uh, I think, last December in Las Vegas at That's the right. A4M meeting. That's right, where you were a speaker. So, so it is a very interesting time. Uh, people are more glued to their homes than they've ever been, I suspect. I think they tell me there's a billion people in uh, self-quarantine at home, which is that's a big number of people. Never seen anything like this in my particular lifetime. So, what, I mean, given you know so much about healing and um, you've written books to help others go through these journeys, you know, idea to help us so we can take some proactive action ourselves rather than relying on a pill or something external to us to make a change. Uh, tell us what you know about the COVID virus. 
Well, you know, I think people have heard many pieces, but my take on it is that it's uh, it's a very significant virus. Of course, it's a very close cousin to COVID one. This been called COVID two, but now it's called COVID nineteen because it came about in twenty nineteen to the SARS virus, sudden acute respiratory distress syndrome. So, you know, that was very big deal. It was a very big deal in Canada, actually, because one of the early cases came to Toronto. I guess that was after somebody had the unhappy event of having the virus and threw up in an elevator in, I think, Hong Kong, and, and all of a sudden all these people had it. And they got ahead of it pretty well in in uh, Toronto, because it had the advantage that it was very direct and quite deadly um, consequences, but it, this one is much harder virus, carries further, you know, hence our social distancing now, that's six, seven feet. So we really have to be aware. But I think some also tremendous research and work has started to come out about it so that we can do much more about it. <clears throat> And uh, one of the ones that I particularly like and have been encouraging people when I've been talking to them is get your own well-being in order as best you can. We know that it's higher risk for those of us with a major illness. And, you know, I have to be among that, I guess, with my multiple sclerosis, but also particularly people with hypertension and diabetes. And yet, you know, we can't wring our hands and say, woe is me, because we need to just do as best we can with what we currently have. So by making those adjustments with, I think, some some key supplements to enhance one's immune system, and then the later thing I want to spend a bit of time on with you today is enhancing your microbiome, because this particular virus does really well with a cold bacteria that it tends to work well with. In almost all the people with COVID-19, they have had issues of increased Prevotella. Prevotella is a species and a, you know, a bigger group, so-called phylum, so it's a tad confusing that way. But we know Prevotella is present in a fair number of the population, and it's increased. It's particularly increased, curiously, in people with hypertension and people with diabetes. So there's a number of foods that you can alter and shift to start to shift that. And, of course, the number of probiotics, you know, the best group being the bifidus group, not so much the lactobacillus group in this case because it tends to enhance Prevotella. So the bifidus group of probiotics is quite outstanding. And then, you know, some foods are really good for the same reason. So the foods, you know, I think it's worth mentioning because I want people to to jot them down. And I'm going to have, you know, an article well prepared by a colleague of mine talking about this completely on my website at Dr. Bill Code, just D-R-B-I-L-L-C-O-D-E, because it's often too much to get down from a podcast unless you can keep listening to it and write them down. But, you know, I'm encouraging people to really increase their green tea, catechins, of course, lauric acid from coconut oil, because that's also even antiviral. Um, It's maybe quite an advantage to get onto a gluten-free diet or certainly much reduced grains in your diet because those boost Prevotella. There's 
you know, other things like foods of celery, thyme, green peppers, chamomile, turmeric, rosemary. And so that gives us the, the list. Um, berberine, interestingly enough, which tends to lower blood sugar, that's a, you know, a supplement of type, also decreases Prevotella, and so does chicory. Um, so eat a omnivorous diet rather than a vegetarian or vegan will help probably to reduce Prevotella and reduce those grains. Things that also tend to increase Prevotella that we want to avoid, aspirin, <laughs> a high-fat diet, metformin, hypertension. So if you're already on metformin, I wouldn't give it up, but I would certainly pay really close attention to all the things I'm suggesting because anybody with one of those strikes against them already of a pre-existing illness, they need to listen even more acutely and do the very best they can to improve their well-being. And they may need to reach for other helpful choices, even like extra oxygen. And if you can't get into a hyperbaric unit, then, you know, get a concentrator or maybe it's a time that our oxygen bars came back. People went in and, you know, once or twice a day for an hour and took extra oxygen because the lack of oxygen and the hypoxemia within the gut aggravates the whole scenario and and weakens the problem in the gut lining and the gut lining leaking and creating bacteria to the lungs is what, you know, starts the whole ball rolling downhill rapidly. Well, that's kind of interesting because, as I understand it, what the test that we had at least a couple of weeks ago, it's going to test, out of 100 people, it's going to miss 30 of them, meaning 30% of the people who have the virus, they don't notice it. So I conclude that these that people with the virus are walking among us and that it's essential to build up our immunity, you know, rather than just wait for someone else to solve it for us. Now, also, interestingly, uh, when you talked about aspirin, my understanding is in 1918 with the Spanish flu that what made that disease so devastating was that people were told to take a lot of aspirin and that was exactly the wrong thing to do in that case and that led to a lot of I guess hemorrhaging and bleeding is that true well I I think part of that certainly is true the difference in the 1918 flu you know which has been grown and you know is in a lab somewhere in the United States unfortunately but it was a, a flu that primarily attacked young people now you know Years ago, I was one of those young people, but now that I'm 66, I'm in the so-called high-risk group of old people, or older people, or the new word I like is elder, because uh, that suggests wisdom rather than just agedness. So if we look on at aspirin, yes, there's certain times that it can be indicative and helpful to us. That used to be a great enthusiasm for it, for everybody to reduce their blood clotting sensitivity or problem, and but now it's been taken out of that group, and now we're using things like pycnogenol rather than aspirin would be a much better choice because the downside is more people lead to death than the number that are saved from strokes or heart attacks. So sometimes we can't do a single pill the way we would like to, but better we do, you know, balance things, set of things ourselves. 
another thing, I found an article uh, some, that, that somebody did a small study, and a lot of the people who had difficulties had low cholesterols. And behind it, they said that cholesterol is a sterile 27 carbon molecule that acts like a carbon track trap so their theory was that low cholesterol increases the carbon pool and thus provides carbons for the dna and rna synthesis for the viral replication so what do you think of that i mean you know maybe we should be taking so many steps i routinely in every patient that i see measure their cholesterol and i'm not doing it to make sure it's not too high i'm doing to make sure it's not too low you know i would like people to be in the realm of 160 at least, 180 is better, and I don't have problems with people at 100, or sorry, 200 to even 240. Um, I have the dubious distinction of having the highest cholesterol in my class in 1973. That kind of dates me all by itself. But, you know, I've never taken a, a statin, and I'm not about to, and I have a chapter in the book where I talk about the drugs that you might reconsider if you're taking them and you might taper off them if you possibly can with the help of your physician because it, uh, we don't take something out of our mix. And, you know, the huge extra problem of anybody that's on something that lowers their cholesterol too much, they can't make their own coenzyme Q10. So CoQ10 is one of my favorites for people to regularly take, you know, even at this these days, 200 milligrams two or three times a day. That's what I would certainly be on if I was in that hypertension or diabetes group because it's very useful. And lowering, lowering cholesterol reduces your ability to make CoQ10 in the body, and it always depletes gradually as we get older. Another thing is, is I've heard that some studies say that the sweet spot for cholesterol is 225, that more people die you know, are likely to die with cholesterols under 225. Of course, that's just an association and not directly a causation, but we also need cholesterol for our sex hormones and for our cell walls. I mean, if we uh, don't have the cholesterol to make good cell walls, our cells won't be working very well. They won't be able to communicate, and especially in the brain. That seems like a path toward disaster. Well, it is a path to disaster. You're completely correct. And low cholesterol is a huge risk factor in the well-being of a, somebody on the autism spectrum, um, somebody with risk of Alzheimer's, um, you know, a tremendous book written by the astronaut when he had his recurrent problems every time he went on a staff, he didn't know who people were and everything else. And so in our great enthusiasm, we created a, a disease effectively when we talked about high cholesterol and we even lowered it again, um, which was a tragic sort of thing to do. When we didn't really have any good evidence for it, we just had a, a group of uh, so-called wizards sitting around the table and agreeing it was a good idea. But So, yeah, I'm very big on having a, a normal, healthy cholesterol. I, I had two eggs this morning, and I'll have two eggs tomorrow morning, too. Ongoing. That sounds great. I want to go They're make my point. eggs right now. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, and also, I mean... 
doesn't, I mean, the people who have heart attacks, it seems uh, half of them have normal cholesterols. And the risk factors for heart attacks, as I understand it, is not your cholesterol, but the number and the size of the very small LDL particles and something called endothelial dysfunction. So the, the, it's, uh, you know, the fact that cholesterol leads to a heart attack needs to be looked at more closely. Well, that that's completely correct, and and uh, you know you talked about. In fact, we were talking about the microcirculation. I mean, we we know now that even though we always talk about these major four or five vessels within the heart, it's the same within the brain. It's the microcirculation where the action and activity is, because that's what supplies a large amount of blood flow to these very important energy requiring cells in both the heart and the brain. So those microcirculation components are only 5 to 100 microns, so that's 0.1 millimeters. That's pretty tiny in our thinking. And it's that microcirculation which is probably responsible for some 80% of our heart attacks. So if we look after it, we look after our endothelial, which is the lining of the blood vessels. We look after that function. We optimize it. And the entire body does much better. What do you recommend to improve the microcirculation as, it, well, as a part of every it. disease? Sure, a number, a number of ways. Um, you know, my favorite group as far as boosting the mitochondria, the mitochondria being our little energy packet makers within the cell or energy factories. And so my favorite three for people that are having problems with low energy, and then they're probably having low energy quality within the endothelial cells lining the blood vessels where the, you know, action's occurring. And my favorite three I learned from Dr. Mark Houston are coenzyme Q10, 200, three times a day, carnitine, or if you're worried about your brain, acetylcarnitine, because it gets across the blood-brain barrier, 500 milligrams, three times a day, and a five-sided sugar, d ribose, five grams, two or three times a day. So each of those is quite dramatic. And, he and you can listen to Mark Houston. Had, we have an interview of Mark Houston, uh, you know, so you can just look him up under his name and you can listen to him talk about these. Oh, that's so. great. Yeah, because he talked about four people getting off his heart transplant list. That, that's a pretty powerful suggestion to me because yes. none of them are harmful. Exactly. I mean, in the days, I mean, you know, there's so much fear going around. I mean, people are operating in fear rather than just in calmness or love, if you want to talk about the Course of Miracles. But, you know, some of the things that I hear, like last week in Italy, they wouldn't give a ventilator to anyone over 70. And this week, I'm hearing they won't give a ventilator to anyone over 60. Sorry, Dr. Code, I didn't want to break that to you. But, yeah, um, no, it's okay. I heard that, too. So, uh, right. tell us some other things we can well, do you know, to keep healthy to uh, make this virus not impact us greatly. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, of course, everybody is, you know, on this self-quarantine angle in Canada, the United States, and other parts of the world to so-called flatten the curve, meaning that, you know, our medical care system can't only handle so many at once. Not only that, you know, the people still working in intensive care and emergency rooms you know, they're I work starting in an to emergency room. I see die. It you know, it's a tough goal. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I work in an emergency room. I'm seeing all this reaction to it firsthand. 
Oh, yeah. I can't imagine that's easy. I mean, I worked a lot of time in intensive care. In Canada, anesthesiology does quite a lot of intensive care, and we do extra amounts in our training. And uh, it's very hard to make those decisions, nobody over 60, nobody over 70. And that's why I want to really encourage people to, you know, regain the confidence that they can make a difference in their own well-being. By making these changes, we've talked a little bit about already in the microbiome and so on, but even something as simple as exercise increases the microcirculation and improves it. So if you can even get out and walk, or if you're unable to walk, you know, maybe you're lucky enough to have a treadmill or an elliptical. I spent 20 minutes on elliptical this morning, and usually because it not only helps wake me up, but I take oxygen while I'm doing it. So I get a double win as far as blood flow to the area. And some of the recent work, you know, in just published in a paper out of China, talks about that boost in oxygen because the COVID virus gets into hypoxia, which is lack of oxygen, of course, and it aggravates that whole problem of the gut leakiness and creating the problem of the acute respiratory distress syndrome in the lung. So you want to stop the ball or at least slow it down at the top of the hill before it gets rolling down fast. Because once it gets rolling down fast and you get into the ICU, now you're into tough times for decision-making. They can only go with the healthy. And so that's why this is a very different virus than the 1918, which primarily attacked young people in their teens, 20s, 30s. This is the other end of the spectrum. And it would be a great tragedy to use all the wisdom accumulated among our elder group. But also all those that are really vulnerable, somebody that's on chemo, somebody that has MS and they're on a chemo drug, which I personally hate, um, in an effort to so-called make them well, but now they're a huge risk of life loss with something like this comes along. Okay, so uh, there's two different issues here. Um, what? Let's talk about what the worried well uh, do, and what about those of us that, oh my gosh, I've got a sore throat and something's coming on. What do we do when something's coming on? So let's address those two different situations. Well, sure. So if you think you're getting the virus, what I would do personally at home is to try to keep track of it. So I would double down. I would do 100,000 international units of vitamin D3, two days running, maybe three days running, because we know that that helps back things off. I would look at doing oxylococcinium if you've got it available, the homeopathic agent, which helps the body deal with an a new onset virus or flu-type syndrome, because we don't know which it is when it's starting, of course. And, you know, I would keep on with my zinc. I would probably take it up to 30 milligrams a day, keep that going. I would increase my glutathione building blocks if I could, whether that's a quality whey protein or whether that's uh, N-acetylcysteine, those sorts of things. We can't always reach for these pieces, and then I would hugely double down on my vitamin C. I would take it up to a gram every hour um, if I thought I was getting a flu in today's world because we want to knock it back, and we know that it's dramatically knocked back. Um, well, several studies in China, it's, it's information's coming out of China that they're actually curing cases with IV vitamin C. 
Yeah, and they've been reluctant in our media in North America to accept that. And, you know, I find that a little frustrating because as recently as a critical care meeting in Australia in early 2020, you know, Merrick, M-A-R-I-K, his protocol of extra vitamin C, small dash of hydrocortisone, and thiamine, 200 milligrams, which I suggest people get. It's a B vitamin, of course, by taking a vitamin B complex, 50 or 100, twice a day for this next couple of months, um, because that will fill in the gaps of those of us that have a slightly different genetics, and we need a little more to cover those bases. And those three in combination have really made a huge difference to people, and they've showed some of that in, in France as well. So if we do those components, then we have a better chance of stopping it. So that Does was, a form it was of vitamin C matter? Does a form of vitamin C matter? What kind of vitamin C, lipospheric, liposomic, does a form matter? Well, it doesn't matter a huge amount. Um, and you're not going to be able to get access to the fancy ones anyway, and some people won't be able to afford it. But if you can get ascorbic acid or vitamin C, the typical downside when you take a little bit more than you're tolerating is you get diarrhea. So if you get diarrhea, fine, back off 20 30% and take less. But if you're fighting a nasty, tough virus at the time, you could be able to take a gram every six minutes, which is an astonishing amount. So this is oral. It isn't all totally absorbed, but you're not always going to be able to find a friendly physician or naturopath who can give you intravenous glutathione. I'm sorry, intravenous vitamin C. So consequently, you know, have your own supply. It's pretty inexpensive. Been around a long time. You know, Linus Pauling with his couple of Nobel Prizes, he was huge on it. And he lived into his mid-90s. Can't argue with that. Um, so two people I respect a lot, Anthony Haynes and Michael Ash, who have the company Neutralink, they also recommend vitamin A, selenium. But I also understand if you have, I've heard somewhere if you have too much selenium, it's not good for the virus. They recommend humic acid, which is something that fights off viruses, olive leaf extract, and they're recommending Saccharomyces boulardii. Three billion, three times a day. Any comments on those particular recommendations? Well, you know, each of those are good because they they tend to always increase the microbiome. They tend to reduce the excess form of candida and then gut pathways, which some of us will have. And so, each of those are helping to optimize. I would suggest the microbiome. And then the other component that works out of those is. Most of those are still accessible for us. I like the Saccharomyces boulardii because it, along with the bifidus, can be quite helpful in readjusting the microbiome, reducing the prevotella, and bringing up the bacillus strain. And so some folks, the folks that biostide, uh, and they have the bacillus strain component, which helps gut health. And it's a good one to reach for at this time, too, because the bacillus strain and to reduce the prevotella strain, which we talked a bit about earlier, and we want to try and minimize. Go back to those foods we talked about earlier and the probiotics. So those are a reasonable regimen that you recommend. I agree. 
Another person I respect very much is Dr. Klinghart, and he recommends something called HOCL that, you know, when you, before, this is before you think you have it, but, you know, if you spray this in your throat, he claims it knocks out any potential uh, viruses, and he also recommends, once you get it, something called andrographis, and he was discussing about the ACE receptors and how it gets in the way and really gives the virus a hard time. What do you think about that. Well, those, those are reasonable. Not all of us are going to be able to reach for them and find them in, in our local areas, I'm afraid, but, you know, I don't have a problem with it at all. The ACE receptors, this is one reason suggested that because the COVID-19 virus tends to cling on to those ACE receptors in the lung, and it's one of the ways that they get established within our own body. So, it's also the reason why the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs, which is the receptor blockers, have been implicated and suggested, but the jury's a little bit out on those. So if you're already on them for your hypertension, keep controlling it with your hypertension, but pay attention and do all the other pieces we're suggesting because it's never wise to completely stop cold turkey, and we don't know completely now yet whether those ACE inhibitors and those ARBs blockers are aggravating or weakening the person for the virus. So it's, it does uh, mean is if you're about start, to start a high blood pressure medication, you might not want to consider an ARB or an ACE inhibitor at this point, but maybe consider it later. That's right. And, you know, so the calcium channel blockers have probably been a, a cleaner group in this particular time frame. You're right. Okay. So tell and, us you know, some- we've got pretty good armamentariums now for those choices for the doctors to make. So tell us what else the worried well can do to build up their immunity so if they get this, it passes, you know, hopefully without much incident. Well, you know, you might work harder at staying calm. And this is, you know, Andrew Wiles, <laughs> 478. I've got a chapter on mindfulness. Anything that will reduce your stress. The fear is really aggravating our stress, uh, and it doesn't serve us in that regard. <clears throat> sure, it makes us a little wiser. So you want to be brilliant at washing your hands because the soap breaks down that virus. Uh, it's quite dramatic how well it does it. It does it even better than alcohol does. Alcohol, if you can find it as a hand cleaner, is helpful. It's the drying phase that helps break the virus. and But it doesn't beat soap and water. And please do not rely on antibacterial soap because the triclosan and those sorts of things Remember, they're antibacterial, but they're not antiviral. You'll have a false sense of security for the wrong reason. So I don't like to use a hand cleaner unless it's only alcohol-based because I think the others can do more harm than good, and that's why some of them were pulled by the FDA in the last year or two because they do damage to the body more than the health. And, you know, as you and I both know, Susan, the health and well-being of your microbiome is a very critical part of our immune system. It's up to 70 or 80% of our immune system. So if we can get that correct, better is us. At the same time, we know that this virus can spread even from the feast six, seven feet. So ideally, you close the lid on the toilet before you flush it, and then you super wash your hands and everything around you and so on even to the degree that if you can dry your hands on paper towels, that's probably better 
then drying them with the air blower, which we've got so excited about and have everywhere, but it's not as optimal a concept. Now, uh, what I've read one approach, somebody saying that you just put hot air into your sinuses where the virus might want to hang out, and that could kill it. Is there any uh, substance to that? I don't, I don't think there's any substance to that. You know, I, I would have no problem putting extra oxygen into your sinuses, so whether that's through nasal specs or nasal prongs, or better yet, through a non-rebreathing mask, so then you can get up to about 7 oxygen intake, and if people did that a couple of times a day, they could probably stave off the lack of injury to it. Um, I'm not keen on hot air into the sinuses. I think you'll injure the sinuses and create other problems. If you have access to, you know, nasal ozone, sure, that's going to make a difference in an antiviral sort of concept, but that's not going to be practically available for the majority of so, tell us more about the microbiome and its role in our health. Well, sure. So, you know, I mentioned that 70, 80% of our whole well-being, if we can aim to eat some 40 to 50 different foods a week. So, right now, I want people to be reducing their grain intake, so particularly gluten and this whole team, but also the other grain in large amounts because those boost that Prevotella, remember, the buddy bacteria of TAMAL-19. So at the same time, by increasing that 40 to 50 different foods per week, you're getting a different group of bacteria boosted for each group of fiber from the different foods. And that's why the variety in foods is such a huge asset for us. At the same time, if we increase probiotics, which we've talked about before, but uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus, GG is a good one because it improves gut. Um, it reduces the permeability and improves gut health. The bifidus longum I've already talked about. Um, so those are, are a real advantage, but the downside is we know that within 7 to 10 days if you quit taking the probiotics, most of it is gone. And that's why the more you can increase the variety within your own gut and increase the groups of bacteria that are already there, the better off you're going to be. And if you can't get a hold of that and, you know, run away on you, then you might need to go to the folks that came out because they've got some of the best microbiome-safe implants that they do rectally on the planet. You can get that in Canada, the Bahamas, Slovakia, UK. Um, right now, we're not moving around for those, but that is a huge shifting of the microbiome for those that can't get caught up by the ordinary method. Most of us can catch up by the ordinary method, and so it's well worth us doing. The other things I like to be increased, of course, you want to be increasing your colorful fruits, vegetables, herbs, tea, cocoa, because each of those and tend to reduce the pathogenic or nasty microbes while boosting the friendly ones. And keep on, like I talked before, things like green tea, saffron, garlic, pomegranate, berries, cinnamon, apple. So they're all good. And the other feature that really helps the gut work well is hyperbaric oxygen. So hyperbaric oxygen could now be thought of 
as a boost of our own personal stem cells. By doing 20 treatments, you're boosting your stem cells six to eight times, and they go in the body where they're needed. And in most of us, it'll be reducing the inflammation and restoring the gut barrier. Because if you can improve the gut barrier integrity and reduce the leaky gut, then you're reducing those tough, nasty bacteria getting from the gut through the bloodstream, through the lungs, and the whole downhill spectrum of ARDS. Yeah, a couple of comments. Is my understanding like sugar or any you know or anything that changes into sugar quickly really uh, depletes our immune system? Because, for example, I think I've read that to digest a molecule of sugar, you might need over twenty molecules of magnesium, and it depletes our body of things that we need. So that's well, pretty important. Well, you're exactly right. And the, the other simple way I try to describe to people is. A sugar intake, a simple sugar intake, unfortunately causes an insulin spike. An insulin spike causes an inflammation spike, and now you're already rolling down the hill of excess inflammation in the body because it's that huge outpouring of molecules or cytokines in the body and the lungs, which gives us a whole cascade of, of downhill at a rapid pace. So reducing the sugar reduces the insulin spike, reduces the inflammation spike. And it's the whole cascade, and it doesn't take more than a teaspoon of sugar to put, you know, the whole thing at relative risk for a short time. So beware, it's not your friend. Also, another important thing I'd like to reaffirm is the role of the gut and having a firm barrier because, for example, autoimmune diseases such as multiple sclerosis, I believe, start in the gut. If we've got a leaky gut and any undigested protein gets into the blood, and then we see that as an invader, we mount an immunity response, and then through molecular mimicry, the antibodies get confused and attack our body. So its gut is so important as a start for our health and our immunity because we don't want it complicated by uh, autoimmunity. And another thought is that, you know, intermittent fasting is enough if we don't have hyperbaric oxygen, which is really great, especially for any brain condition. I mean, from my reading, if you get a traumatic brain injury or a head bonk, which can cause serious problems down the road, my reading is that hyperbaric oxygen is uh, really helpful. But I also read that intermittent fasting, you know, where we stop eating as early as we can in the night and go at least 12 hours, 14, 16, whatever we can do, um, that that increases our stem cells and increases something called autophagy, which means we get rid of the garbage that's hanging around in our body, which is also a source of inflammation, oxidative stress, and starting us on that disease path. Well, no, that that's right, and I'm a, I'm a big fan. I aim for, I think the sweet spot for a lot of us is 13 hours, and that's not that hard to do if we have our evening meal, you know, hopefully eat it like a popper and not a huge evening meal, but eat it, and then, you know, you'll have your breakfast some 13 hours later. And that 13 hours completely is a great way to reset the body and help it clear through the system. I don't think we've always eaten a bunch of meals a day and, Raiding the refrigerator at night just isn't a good idea for any one of us, um, along with the, you know, the other pieces that depress gut integrity. So mild to moderate amounts of alcohol is fine, but upper moderate or excess amounts, of course, are a semi-disaster, and those tend to be consumed in the evening, and so now you've blown your whole uh, concept of your 13-hour fast. And I do that 
as many days a week as I can. I think you're completely correct. And I used to do up to that 15, 16 hours. I don't work as hard at it as now because it seems that at least 13 tends to be a sweet spot. And that starts to help, you know, all of your other things improve. Your blood sugar control, potentially even some degree of inches or weight loss around the belly, which is all, you know, tough stuff to deal with. And it weakens your immune system and changes your whole gut microbiome. So it's, I think Hippocrates said it really well. If you can get the gut healthy, the person is virtually always well. I also have a theory that, you know, the toxins get in the way because we're so busy in our body fighting off the toxins, it doesn't leave enough to fight off any newcomer like the virus. For example, glyphosate and EMF uh, open up the blood-brain barrier, which means all sorts of creepy crawlies get into the brain, which is recipe for disaster. It opens up the gut barrier, which, as we described, is important for our health and immunity. It interferes with uh, intercellular communication, which means things are really going to go amok. And in the case of glyphosate, it impairs our ability to detox. So my theory is one of the things that's going so wrong is we're so busy fighting these other toxins and our body can only fight so many things at a time. We are developed that we can fight certain things, but we're overwhelming it with our lifestyle, our food choices, the crap people put on their face because they want to stink nice. I mean, you know, my theory is that all that's getting in the way of us being healthy and having a healthy immunity. Well, no, it it is exactly so. And I spend a lot of time in my book, Solving the Brain Puzzle, talking about, you know, why would you eat organic? Well, if you eat organic, you're dramatically reducing your glyphosate intake. This is critically important for those of us that had a warning of an illness already because it's usually a sign that you're overloaded from some of the toxins that you're taking in. So the best way to reduce the toxins is, number one, put taking them in and increase your liver's ability to deal with them by removing the glyphosate. The glyphosate, as you know, you quite rightly state, also is a recognized and was patented by Monsanto as an antibiotic. So everybody that's eating something containing glyphosate, so that's, of course, all your GMO foods and, unfortunately, almost all your commercial wheat, as well as potatoes, wheat potatoes, and, of course, all the both cane sugar and beet sugar are produced with those as drying agents, even if they're not GMO agents. And it's that really backing forward, and I think it's going to be a crisis. It's going to aggravate the whole crisis in the United States. And this is especially exquisitely important in children because children don't have the ability to deal with toxins the way you and I do. So they're even more vulnerable. So those are all pieces that we can really focus on now that we're really, we have time in our hands. We can learn more about this. We've got the wonderful asset of learning about it on the Internet. And what I tried to do with the book is try to put all the components in the person's hand so that there's a, it's a layperson's guide so that they can start to understand that. No matter what age you are, everybody wants to have a better functioning brain and healthier. And I'm really excited. We know so much now that we can do it if we just do it a step at a time and take on what we can. So, you know, there's advantages of eating organic or at least knowing what you're eating. So I included a chapter on how to grow food. So anybody can do that, even if you've got a window box or something, 
and get your hands in the soil because the soil microbiome, you know, pull a carrot out of the soil, brush off the big pieces of dirt, and then eat it because soil microbiome is just as important for health. And that's why anytime we think we can spray weeds on our soil or insecticides on our soil, we're actually weakening the microbiome there. And, of course, things don't grow as well. Things don't grow as healthy. And plants or animals that aren't grown on healthy things, they don't provide us with the health dominance when we eat them. So it it all fits all together. Another challenge is we've destroyed the microbiome by monocrop farming. We've destroyed the soil. And some people say that the answer to um, the global warming is not to just have mono agriculture where we destroy a large part of the land with one particular um, vegetable or something, but to have uh, small farmers that take care of the soils with animals naturally fertilizing and having a symbiosis with the you know the land so i mean i don't think the answer is going to be impossible burgers folks no i don't think the answer is possible burgers either but you know you're completely correct because i think we've established now careful research has shown that if you have a group of organic working type farmers they don't have to necessarily be officially recognized organic but that's what we have to go to as a mainstream concept maybe here in north america but it they can grow as much or more food than the monocropping system. We've been sold a bill of goods, and the people that have developed the monocropping system, most of the wise ones, they're growing their own place, their own garden, independent of all those terrible things. You, you know, you look at farmers, they're close to the land, they understand the health of their land and the long-term health of the plants and rotating the crops, they've got it down pat. And it's only when we get sold a bill of goods by either the, the major producers of the fertilizers, pesticides, the herbicides, and even now specialized seed that they want to sell us because we can't have our own seed production. You know, these are all steps backward in the interest of greed, and they're not moving us forward in the interest of health or the health of the planet because it all matters. Every time you grow things, uh, it makes a big difference. My daughter is now the, the beef specialist, livestock specialist to British Columbia, so that's 4 million people, and she's very aware, did her master's in sustainable agriculture over in Europe, and completely understands that you've got to have everything in its place and the cycle working together. Joel Salatin over in Virginia, he's one of the brilliant proponents of this. So we've got bright sparks everywhere, and people are adapting to them. We just have to support them. Yeah, and somehow or other, this information is not readily accessible. For example, my last film, The Big Secret, was censored by Congressman Adam Schiff. I don't know. I guess I got something right, but maybe his MD degree is more important than the world experts. I don't know. But there are a couple of other things you mentioned in your book for healing tools, and one was photomodulation, lasers, and CBD. Do you wish to talk on any of those? Well, sure. I mean, let's Let's talk CBD. It's a very topical thing right now. The CBDs, you know, which are the non-mind-bending or non-mind-modification group of the marijuana or cannabis plant, are pretty much accepted. We want them to be healthy and clean and quality products. There's no question. But CBD or cannabinoids, 
do have some antimicrobial factors. They have some benefits in general, and they may be a benefit for us, certainly for anybody that's struggling with issues of anxiety and other things, because unfortunately, most of our pharmaceuticals kind of weaken our microbiome in one shape or form. So I do like the CBDs for that. I'm also a big fan of of uh, photobiomodulation, which I spend a whole chapter on in the book, because we've had that some 35 years, and it's a tremendous route to help people with their chronic pain problem, whether that's back pain. Well, what is pain. it? How about describing what it is? Photo- photobiomodulation is best described as a cool laser, laser or a low-level laser therapy. So most of us have seen a rendition of this when you go to the checkout stand at your grocery store or other stores and they use that red scanner, that is a type of photobiomodulation. It isn't enough and it isn't in the optimal range, but it lets you feature the concept of how it's working. When you use this cool laser light, and you have to say cool because it doesn't burn the skin, it doesn't burn tissue the way we use surgical lasers, but it provides the laser light at particular frequencies in either laser or light-emitting diode that passes through the tissue. So the laser light can penetrate up to an inch, you know, two to three centimeters into the body because it's hard to believe that we have a lot more holes in us than we think, and we're also light beings. So that light passing through hits the cells, and it particularly interacts with the cytochrome system, cytochrome being, of course, light-sensitive, and that's part of the pathway in the mitochondria to making energy. And as that releases the cells, then the cells can improvement in energy function, and then they all work better. So it doesn't just work on the skin, but that's been a very common type of laser for 20 years. You can often buy it off the shelf because it's approved by the um, FDA for use on and so on, but now we know that it penetrates far enough to make a difference in the joint. And the biggest, newest item has been the helmet laser, which is talked about in Michael Hamblin's book. He's uh, one of the researchers on it in the photobiomodulation, you know, niche or department within, within the Harvard system. But he talks about it, how it penetrates the brain, because it penetrates the brain enough and makes a difference in the blood vessels supplying the brain that you can improve the brain's function of energy. Consequently, you can make a difference in some types of Alzheimer's, problems with mood and depression and anxiety, and you can make a difference potentially even in other problems. And the most notable one is the helmets now recognized by the FDA for the treatment of three brain problems which were and those are traumatic brain injury, PTSD, and even CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is the NFL football players. So what about red light? I mean, like being near red light and exposing that to, you know, just sitting in that for a while, that's helpful as well? Well, yes, it is. So you're thinking maybe of the infrared sauna? 
Is that what you mean? Well, infrared sauna, oh, we've got three minutes left, so I'm kind of pushing things. Infrared sauna is very helpful, folks, because the sweating, et cetera, helps get rid of the toxins. But I was talking about the red light, and you have three minutes left, so I want you to, to pick up any pieces and communicate any messages that we might not have left out or you think are important or how to get a hold of you and your website. Sure. Well, you know, I think in summary, today we focused a bit on COVID-19 because it's what's consuming everybody's anxiety and worries very much these days. I want to tell people that you have a lot of control of your own destiny, and the more you do now for yourself, the better your chances for you and your family in the long term. And so that's increasing your intake of vitamin D, vitamin C, as well as B vitamins and probably zinc. Those are probably some of the key ones. Increase those bifidus, probiotics, saccharomyces is a good one as well because each of these help the microbiome be better and improve the gut health. In doing that, you know, I've done a couple of podcasts on COVID-19. You can find that on thepointofreturn.com and you can find it on drbillcode.com. And of course, linking into that, you can access my book, Solving the Brain Puzzle, where we have nearly 600 pages and over 400 references but written in a layman's term for bit by bit. So that will give you things you can do at home right now, like disconnect your Wi-Fi at night, get rid of your hands-free phones, try and use your cell phone less and text more and talk less. All of these things reduce your EMF exposure. So all of these things will combine and make a real difference what you can do. And then, of course, the ultimate awareness you are what you put in your mouth, and you are what you eat. So adjust, change, learn about it now when you've got time in your hands, and keep your family and yourself healthy and happy. Well, there you have it, folks. Let's take our destiny in our own hands. Let's take proactive steps. So let's take responsibility so we can do as much as we can to keep our body healthy. Because as you see, the we're predicting uh, overtaxing demands on our medical systems as a possibility. So it's very important we take steps to build our health and not just rely on some external source. So thank you, Dr. Code. So I wish that you all do more research, look into these things, share it with uh, your physicians, your clinicians, and each other. And above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.